Welcome to Pop Culture Retro, which was recently voted the 15th best podcast by the residents of the Golden Years Retirement Community in Boca Raton, Florida. Each show, we'll revisit some of your favorite pop culture memories with insider and outsider perspectives. Now, please help me welcome your hosts, Ike Eisenman and Jonathan Rosen. Hello and welcome to another edition of Pop Culture Retro. Today we are thrilled to welcome an actor, producer, writer, and someone who starred in two long-running beloved series, Little House and Jag. Please help us welcome Patrick Laberto. Patrick, thank you for joining us. (laughs) Thank you, guys. It's a real (laughs) pleasure to be on the show. I enjoy watching it. Oh, wow. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. Absolutely. Uh, I was going through your IMDb page, and much, much like Ike, your page is extensive. Uh, you seem to have been in everything. Did you always want to be an actor, or was it something that you were kind of pushed into? Well, I started when I was three years old, and that was a difficult conversation to have with my parents. You know, I sat them down, and I said, I really want to be an actor. And and I, I talked them into it at three. So, no, I my mom was an actress, and so she started taking me around to auditions and things that she was doing, and it just sort of one thing led to another. And then later on when, you know, when I was old enough, there was a period where I thought maybe I won't be an actor around college age, and then I just kept getting parts, and I kept thinking, well, why not? You know, it's... <laughs> I enjoy it. If, if hey, they're giving well, me the role, right. money at it. once you're on a roll, why why stop? Right, That's exactly. what happened to me. Right. Yeah, I ended up. I wanted to go to film school, and so I was trying to get into film school. And as I was waiting for my acceptance letters, I was going to, you know, take. I was taking all of the uh, the preliminary courses, but I kept having to leave because I was working on TV movies or or whatever. And I kept realizing. I just realized that you know, well. I'm on a set. I guess I can learn from the guys that are yeah. doing it. <laughs> you can't, can't, can't have a better film school than that. I mean, come on. Right. <laughs> well, you you break into the business, and two of your first credits are Blazing Saddles with Mel Brooks, Name with Lucille Ball, two titans in Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, talk about starting with a bang. I mean, you were still relatively young, but were you aware of who these people were? Not at all. Not at all. I had no idea who either of them were. My mom tried to explain it to me. Um, When I was doing uh, Blazing Saddles, we were on the back of Warners. I don't even know if they have it anymore, though. It was a Western Street. And when you're on a studio lot, Western Street, or any street, when you're on a studio lot, it's designed so that when you're there... Anywhere you look, you you think that you're still there. The the streets are curved and the the vistas are kind of, you know, cheated so that you feel like, so they can put the camera anywhere. So for this summer that I was working on Blazing Saddles, and it was a summer, it was like six weeks that I was there because I was in all of the stuff that was shot in Rock Ridge. I had three different scenes that was cut. And, you know, it's it's one of the greatest comedies of all time. So they kept everything that was good, and I'm sure they cut a ton that was good, and I happened to be some of the stuff that was cut. Um, it's like, what are you going to do? You know, it's like <laughs> Gene Wilder and Cleavon Little and Harvey Corman, you're going to sit there and go, gee, my stuff was better? I don't think so. <laughs> so um, when we were shooting, I kind of just was at Western camp the whole time you know there was a bunch of kids on the set playing kids 
and I was playing a kid and we were just running around the Western street. But when I would shoot my scenes, the director, Mel Brooks, would make such a big deal after each take. He would run up and down the set screaming, this kid's going to be a star. This kid's going to be, you know, the biggest name in the business. And of course, now when I look back on it, I, I get why it's funny. But at the time, I was like, oh, wow, he really likes me. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't see, I didn't see how it was kind of, you know, uh, a joke. Um, later in my career, I would collect, I ended up collecting uh, your show of shows uh, and, um, and uh, the Sid Caesar show, where I, I did a McDonald Land commercial that was directed by Howard Morris. I did Mel Brooks with uh, Blazing Saddles, and I worked with Carl Reiner on uh, Summer School. Yeah. So there were three people there that were on your show, show which is, you know, obviously, if, obvious to us, but maybe if you don't know what it is, it's, uh, it was a show that starred Sid Caesar, and it was kind of like the beginning of comedy on television as far as like SNL and, and all of that. They did mm -hmm. sketch comedy, and in the writer's room for your show shows was Woody Allen, Neil Simon, Danny Simon, Carl Reiner, you know, wow. just a, a murderer's row of, of people. Um, and wow. then uh, going back to the question uh, with, uh, with Lucille Ball, I knew she was an actress on television because I saw her TV show, I Love Lucy. I had no idea that it was so old at that time. It was probably about 20 years old. And so I was, I don't know, maybe seven or eight and I would come on stage and I was working with Lucy, I would talk to her about the episode that was on the night before, which she had shot maybe 20 years ago. And, you know, she was so sweet. She'd sit there and talk to me about it like it had just been done. Uh -huh. And, you know, I didn't make the connection that, you know, the lady in black and white looked completely different than the lady wow. that I'm standing awesome. there with, you know. But, you know, it, it was it was a blast. I remember working on that show, and in that movie, every sign, every line I had, you know, they kept. Um, that was, I guess, maybe I worked about three weeks on that show, and that was a classic inside a movie studio movie, shot on a studio lot, and then we ended up shooting at Burbank Airport for some stuff, and I just remember there was this one moment when. The director kept saying, keep your eyes open, Patrick, keep your eyes open. Because when I was talking to them, I was squinting my eyes. And mm. so Lucy bent down and she got down to my level and she looked up and she goes, oh, Jesus, you can't see anything. You got all of these, you know, and it was back, you know, you had mentioned the arc lights, right? I, oh, yeah. When I posted that photo, they had like three arc lights, you know, because it was back in the day where the film wasn't that fast. And so you had to have tons and tons of light. And so there was so much light pounding on me, I couldn't see anything. And it was only until Lucy, you know, looked down at, you know, from my point of view that she, they had to adjust the lights. <laughs> but yeah, I had a great time on both of those shows, having no idea, no idea whatsoever, you know. And, and of course, Blazing Saddles at the time was called Black Bart. Right. And it was a comedy that even when we were shooting, no one ever thought would be released. I, I remember <laughs> they, they were saying, you know, no one's going to ever watch this movie. And I couldn't understand why. Now I yeah. do because I, you know, I hadn't read the whole script. Um, I wasn't allowed to. <laughs> oh, I, wow. I get that. So, yeah. I mean, other, other than, other than Mel, like uh, inflating your ego, probably to keep you in a, in a, a nice, happy, happy working mood. <laughs> what, what was, what, what was he like as a director? Was there anything, you know, specific he had you do or working with him? 
he I I I just remember him being fun. Like I remember his energy was really high. It was really fun to work for him. Again, it, you know, like you're saying, inflating the ego. He he made you feel like whatever you were doing was brilliant. Yeah. Um, at least, you know, for me. And the people on the set, I was more, I, you know, I, I the person that I was so fascinated and starstruck by was Cleavon Little. Mm. There was a show called Temperatures Rising that was on at the time, and I was watching that on television, and here he was right there, and I was doing scenes with him, having no idea that, you know, the part was written for Richard Pryor, by Richard yeah. Pryor. <laughs> And, you know, I could have been working with Richard Pryor, but they didn't think that he was safe for movies. <laughs> um, but Cleavon Little was amazing, and, and it was an amazing, amazing person. Um, I later found out just recently, I mean, just side talk between you guys um, and, and everyone watching. <laughs> um, for legal reasons, they made a Black Bart TV show, a season of a whole Black Bart TV show, yeah. Yeah. which I blew my mind i had no idea it existed and that's a whole nother hollywood thing but uh <laughs> but the deal with mel brooks was i um you know my brother matthew and my brother matthew loves animals and he had a pet snake at the time and my mom wanted to impress mel brooks so we brought the snake to the audition because <laughs> in one of the scenes this kid's playing with a snake oh and so i show up with a snake yeah and you know who knows? I'm, I'm sure that the snake is what got me the part. You know, at that time, if you remember, like, you did anything you could to, like, kind of be the one that stood out, which is oh. funny because there was maybe about 12 of us, and now there's, like, 12,000 who audition for every role. But back right. in the day, it was, like, 12 people, and yeah, we're like, I am going to get this part. Yeah. Lucy Dryer ain't got nothing on me. <laughs> yeah, we've all since doing the show, I'm talking to, you know, all of my friends and contemporaries from back then. And that's the thing that we 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 keep bringing up is how small the pool was of, you know, successful, good, really solid working child actors. It was very small, maybe a, a dozen. And so, yeah, the competition actually was. It wasn't stiff because you had so many you were working against. It was because they were all talented, and so you were we're all kind of like jot, you know jostling um, to to get jobs, and they moved around amongst everyone. Um, so yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's, right I mean, it's ridiculous because I, I'm still friends with Stephen Manley. Um, I, I remember a guy named Shane Sanutko, Robbie Rist, Lucy Dreyer, you, your brother, um, and there were a couple others. However. I, Robbie just joined a Facebook group that I'm a part of, and now we're in our 50s, I am, yeah. and so it makes sense, but we were talking about our working days as seven-year-olds as though we were in our 50s then. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, I, I really wanted that pot. I can't believe that you got that pot. You played, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. what was it on the, on the Mary Tyler Moore show, Ted... Um, <laughs> Oh, the, the the answer, the the newscaster. Yeah, Ted um, Knight. Ted Knight, yes. Uh, Ted, yeah, Ted, Ted Knight. Ted Knight was adopting a kid, and I auditioned for it, and so did Robbie. And Robbie got it, but I really wanted it. And I'm 57 now, and I'm still telling you this story that I really wanted a part on the Mary Tyler Moore show playing Ted Knight's kid. And yeah. it's like... And, and we're and we're still arguing about it in our fifties. It's, it's yeah. Moosey and I had that same exchange. We <laughs> we had his show just posted recently. Now we're going to date the show. We were trying not to do that, but yeah. Moosey was talking about the one part he wanted so badly that I ended up getting uh, of, of uh -huh. um, 
an yep, ABC after school special, special yeah. called <laughs> My Dad Lives in a Downtown Hotel. And he, he said, not that I'm bitter about it anymore, but one I one of the best you. titles of uh, ever, by the way, <laughs> yeah. I gotta say. <laughs> Very descriptive. It pretty much tells what the story is all about. But uh, right. But anyway, getting back to Blazing Saddles. Okay, so Gene Wilder, you don't necessarily know who he is, but what were your recollections of, of him? Was he was he an on, you know, I mean, like Mel Brooks is on all the time. It was Gene right. Wilder like that, or was he a little bit? More I never, I never dry? worked with Gene Wilder. Oh, you and didn't? Okay. No, I just worked with Cleveland Little. And oh, okay. the the part that I played was this character named Johnny Johnson. And the three scenes that I had, you know, all the people were named Johnson. Uh, the three scenes I had was I'm playing with a snake when the bad guys come to town and they tie my snake in a knot, and I look at it and I say, "Pal, what have they done to you?" The second scene was when they're trying to get a new sheriff in town in the church and they're going to go, well, you know, the preacher says, well, we're going to need somebody to be sheriff. And I raise my hand and I say, I'll be sheriff. And everyone goes, well, look at him. He's brave. He's big for his age. Let the kid be sheriff. I vote for the kid. Let him be sheriff. And they're about to vote me as sheriff when my mother stops it and says he can't be sheriff. You know, he's, he's, he's 10. And then the final scene was when uh, Bart comes to town and it's that famous walk where everyone calls him names and, you know, it's just like horrible. Yeah. And he comes across a bunch of kids beating me up and he, he, you know, shoos them away. And he says, well, what do you guys, you know, what's going on here? And I said, we're just playing. And he goes, what kind of game are you playing? And I said, we're playing Welcome the New Sheriff. <laughs> and so that was, you know, that was the laugh line. So my big scene was with Cleveland Little. And I had heard, and again, I'm going to get the names wrong. There was another actor that was supposed to play Gene Wilder's part. And mm. the time that I was shooting, it had just been figured out that Gene Wilder was going to be that character, was going to be the Waco kid. And so it was the big talk on the set that the other actor, who will remain nameless because I can't remember the name, mm. um, somehow had been a like an alcoholic and yeah, couldn't do that. I read that. And so when uh, it confused me as a child, because later on when I saw the movie and the Waco kid is introduced as an alcoholic, I never knew if that was part of the script or if that was him being like, if it was an inside joke. Yeah. Oh, you know, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like to the other, to the other actor. But of course, I mean, could it have been a better combination than those two guys? Oh, God. And I remember one of the scenes that we did that you can actually see me in when when he first gets to Rock Ridge and there's a bandstand and he takes himself hostage um, and says, you know, he's going to do it. I believe he's going to do it. Um, there's a little <laughs> kid there with a hat who's watching. And that's me, of course, oh. the backside of me. So it's like, OK, so there I am. But I just remember being there and being so fascinated because I knew it was in a movie. But all the other actors were so good. I kept thinking to myself, they know it's him, right? <laughs> because they kept acting like, they, you know, it's like I didn't get the absurdity of it all. And yeah. so I couldn't figure out why the adults weren't figuring out what was so clear to me that it's the same guy. So. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. Well, I know Western Western sets were always my absolute favorite to work on. I just, I just, it was like to me yeah. a big amusement park. Was it was it fun being on a Western set? Did you enjoy that? I loved it because one of the things, uh, completely opposite of Mame and some other things that I had done, is for us young kids, you know, back in the day, B 
because of the lights and because of the film, they put on this pancake makeup that you had that was really, really thick. And it looked like, you know, bronzer. And they'd go down here and you'd get tissue all around your collar. And for a young man, for a kid, trying to keep that off your collar and, you know, not stain your clothes was like a big heart. That was like the hardest part of my job on some stuff. Yeah. But with Little House and with Blazing Saddles and with anything on a Western street, you know, it, it didn't matter. Everything was dirty. You couldn't, you didn't have to worry about your wardrobe because you were in dirt. Yeah. And so it was, it, that part was really fun. And the thing that I love now and that I look back on, when we did Blazing Saddles, I went to Western Costume, which is gone. Well, I mean, it's still around, but the building itself was on Melrose, the old Western Costume building. Oh, it yeah. was the original building and, you know, there's like five stories and I don't know, man, it just smelled, it probably was mothballs for all I know, but it smelled <laughs> like old Hollywood. <laughs> and I just remember like seeing all these clothes. It was a building filled with clothes where yep. basically the entire history of Hollywood had been dressed there. Yeah. And that, you know, it still exists somewhere. It's out in the Valley. I just happened to be there again for a show I just did, but it's not the same thing. It's, you know, it's in a warehouse, but yeah, I remember going there and that was a fantastic, um, experience. And it just, it, it was a great, great time for me yeah. for, you know, being a kid and pretending. And the other thing too, is we shot some of the stuff on the ranch out there at Warner brothers ranch and Warner brothers ranch is this place that I'm, I'm, I'm really upset about they're just beginning to redevelop and they're going to build a couple more stages out there. And so they're going to take down the neighborhood, you know, the neighborhood they have out there of mm. the, uh, of the, you know, the facades of the homes and they yeah. shot, uh, American beauty there. They shot the middle there. They shot Christmas vacation. They shot, you know, WandaVision. There's a thousand things that they've shot there mm. in this little neighborhood. Um, and I used to take my bike. I had a bike that, you know, we brought to the set cause studio lot is a great place to ride a bike um and so i had my bike there and so we would ride around the the neighborhood there and <laughs> there was one time back on the main lot where i was riding my bike and my mom and i had gone to the commissary and i run into this big cowboy guy and he picks me up and he picks up the bike and he goes whoa partner here you go and he hands me a bike and i said thanks and my mom is freaking my mom, I don't know if you could be screaming and quiet at the same time and sweating and shaking. And she goes, you know who you just ran into? I said, who? She goes, you ran into the Duke. I said, what's the Duke? And she goes, it's John Wayne. You ran into John Wayne. <laughs> wow. It's just like running into a tree trunk. <laughs> it was. I mean, to me, all I, I never saw his face. It was too far away. All I saw was, you know, his belt maybe. And, you know, his hand fit over my entire left side of my body when he picked me up. But, you know, again, only later did I find out. I think he was doing the shootest there with Ron Howard. Mm -hmm. But it was like finding out all of these people later on that you interact with is like, oh, that's amazing. Yeah, and, but we could we could cut it out later. But it was Gig Young who was supposed to be uh, the part. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so, ah, okay. But yeah, I, 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 I remember reading that, that, that he had a drinking problem and that uh, Mel Brooks had couldn't use him mm. there. Now, did you understand all the humor on this show or on the movie or no <laughs> at the time? All I all I was able to read, and you know, it wasn't I, I could have read the whole script, but they wouldn't mm. let me. All I was allowed <laughs> to read. <laughs> 
was my were my scenes and so i understood the humor in those scenes okay and i didn't understand the racist humor of the scene that i did with we're you know just we're just playing welcome to the new sheriff they explained right. it to me it's like yeah everyone's being mean to him because he's the new guy mm. no it's, it's one of the greatest comedies of all time and, it, and like it would never get made today. Everyone keeps saying it would never, that movie would never get made. But uh, no. you, yeah. But what point did you realize this is going to be like an enduring classic? Let's see. If I made it, if, if I shot it in 73, you got to remember there was no home video or anything. Right. In fact, on a very personal note, the only, the first time I think I ever saw any home video was at your house, like with your beta machines and your oh, dad's, wow. <laughs> you know, your bad, your dad's collection and like yep. you could get movies and stuff. And you guys had tons of them. Yeah. And you would tape programs. And the first uh, VCR we got was during Little House. And it was an RCA because at the time NBC was owned by RCA. And we got ourselves a VHS VCR. For the low, low price, because we were part of the RCA family of sixteen hundred dollars. Yeah. In like nineteen eighty, uh, and I think we, you know, for that was like for us an episode's salary. Yeah. Um, which again is still a lot of money. We were making a lot of money as kids, but you know, fifteen hundred dollars, sixteen hundred dollars for a VCR. Um, so the movies weren't. I wasn't able to see the movie until home video. Oh, until yeah. because they weren't re-releasing the movies it wasn't there was no streaming there was no hbo even and so it, it was not until later on when i was older that i saw it and again this is you know time rolls on in the 70s and 80s gay and black jokes were gay and black jokes they had books for Pollock jokes and just you know just books of just offensive jokes yeah, that yeah. you buy you know yeah. here's how to here's how to insult an entire Race of people enjoy, yeah. and so there were lots of jokes in this movie that even then weren't that over the top, which now they are. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing it. I remember loving it and being so happy that I was a part of it. Mm -hmm. And then when the revivals started happening, as far as like uh, out here, the New Art and some other movie theaters where they would play older movies, uh, then that started hitting the, you know, the revival circuit and then it started becoming something different which was really really great which you know did not happen with Mame. <laughs> well yeah that speaking of Mame, not age as well no yeah speaking of Mame, but you did have you mentioned lucille ball you also had b arthur robert preston directed by gene stacks uh what do you remember about some of those names um my scenes were mainly with uh were specifically with lucille ball mm -hmm. And his name is just, he played my father. He played Peter. He's a wonderful actor. He's in the X-Men movies. Um, um, help me out, please. I'm going to look at him uh, up. <laughs> thank you. Uh, they were, they, he played my father. And so my scenes were just with them. So I was basically exclusively with Lucy. And because of my, I was the grand nephew. And again, in the movie, it's hysterical. You watch my performance. I'm just a small kid screaming all of my lines. <laughs> and the because of the way because of the way of the story, I, I'm holding Lucy's hand through the entire shoot. So I'm literally right next to Lucille Ball. We're physically connected. And she was the sweetest person ever. She was obviously the most powerful person on the set. Mm -hmm. 
I, I knew that she was the star and I figured that's the reason all the adults were afraid of her. <laughs> and I, I could, you know, that as a kid, because anytime an adult would come around her and I, they treated me different. They treated her different than the way they would treat you normally. Yeah. And so I really thought it was really swell that, you know, she was so nice. And we shot during the Christmas uh, you know, time of year. And so they had a Christmas party and she gave me a Mickey Mouse watch from, <laughs> uh, you know, back in the day. And it, on the back, it says, love Lucy. Oh, and wow. of course, I've lost that watch of which I wish I had still. Oh. Don't know oh. where it went. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, you know, as, God, again, bring, as bring the adult. Heart. <laughs> right as the adult yeah. a mickey mouse watch an original one says love lucy from leo seal and it had a personalized you know happy merry christmas patrick you know yours lucy like it was just like come on oh wow um and so she was really really sweet and i just knew that it was you know she was a big movie star but again with your references at that age you know, I had gone, I'd, I'd seen every movie star possible, Cleavon Little and Lucille Ball. So what else was there? <laughs> well, there was a lot of, there was also a lot of drama behind the scenes there. I mean, like B. Arthur saying that Lucille Ball was miscast and Lucille Ball having Madeline Kahn fired. Were you aware of any of that stuff? No, no, not at all. I, I knew, again, when you're a kid on a, on a big movie like that, uh, and there were no other kids. There was a uh, Kirby Furlong played the, the, the younger version of my father in the movie. Mm-hmm. He played Patrick. I played Peter, but we never worked together. So there was no other kids on the movie. And so when there's no other kids on the movie, you go to school, you're with your mom, you're with your teacher, or you're physically on set doing your work. Mm-hmm. And at that age, when I was that, that young, it literally was, you go in, you do your scene, they get the work and then you go away. There's really no hanging out on set. You go back to your 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 dressing room, yeah. Um, and especially for my part, which was very strategic, it was just three scenes. But again, I worked for a month because it's a big Hollywood movie, and they don't they take their time. Yeah. And you know, nowadays you could have done that. I could have done the, the the whole part within two days, one on the studio lot and one on location. Yeah, and it was yeah. Bruce Davison, right? That's one. Bruce Davidson, yes, and you know it was so it was so wonderful because I saw him recently, you know, at, at a restaurant, and I came up to him. He doesn't look any different. He looks exactly the same, and you know, here I am coming up to him. I'm all gray and old, and I go, "I played your son in Maine," <laughs> and he was like, "Oh, very good, very good." Oh my god. So okay, so you 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 do this this huge film and you work um, you're a working child actor for 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 quite a while there, and then you get a regular role on Little House on the Prairie. And just for the record, that was when I started I started to hate you because that's all I wanted. I just wanted to be on a show like that where I didn't have to audition and I could go to work every week and just have a great time. So how did how did that come about for you? Um, Everything about Little House for me was insanely amazing. Mm. Um, I want to rub it in just a minute. <laughs> oh, go it for was it. exactly like what you wanted. The, <laughs> the ability to go to work and not have to make any competition and just be able to do script after script of shows that, you know, 
just that were amazing. Mm. Um, the audition process was crazy. It was, um, and, and it turned out to be my favorite type of uh, audition process, which is we're replacing an actor. <laughs> and so they said, we're replacing an actor. There's a kid that's on this show that we're just replacing. I had never heard any stories from the Little House cast about this guy. I don't know what it was that they replaced or why they replaced him. So there's nothing good or bad to say about it. It just happened to be, you know, in, in my life at that time and my brother's life, what would happen is, is we'd go to school, regular school day, and then mom would pick us up and we'd find out, okay, you got an audition. So we're going to go to the audition. And there was no faxing. There was no anything at that time. So there would be no scripts in the car. You'd get to the audition, you'd look at the script, you'd work on it, and then you'd go on audition. And so Wednesday was, I think it was the time, Wednesday nights they would um, air Little House on the Prairie. They, we went back and forth from Monday to Wednesday, and I think at the time it was Wednesday. So I had just seen uh, an episode of Little House, and I, I watched Little House. There, it was a great show, and it was one of the shows that had kids on it, and I just was a big fan. So I watched it on Wednesday. Thursday after school, my mom picks us up and she says, okay, you have an audition for Little House on the Prairie. I'm like, oh, cool. My brother was picked up by my father so that my mom and I would go on the audition. My brother had already played Charles Ingalls as a young man mm -hmm. the prior season. He had done two episodes. I think it was two episodes by then. And so my mom and my brother knew Michael and the cast and everyone, but, but I didn't. So we go to Paramount and I read for the then named Sue Sukman or Su yeah, Susie Sukman, who is the casting director. And you, you read and then she goes, okay, I'd like you to read for Michael. And I'm like, Oh, great. So Michael's on location in Simi Valley. So we had to get into a truck and they drove us an hour and a half to Simi Valley and they take us up to this mountain. And again, another 30 minutes from the time we're in the parking lot to when we get up to location. And then we're walking in this dirt and in these hills and then we come over this hill and then all of a sudden there's Walnut Grove. Mm. It feels like it's out of nowhere, but it took us forever to get there. So it's like, it's we're, we walk in and there's Walnut Grove. There's the mercantile, there's the sawmill and right in the middle of town, there's the tree. And that's where Michael was sitting, right there underneath the tree. And I guess there was about three other kids that were eating. Shane Sanuko was one of them. Um, and he read us under the tree. And then we would come back over to the sawmill and wait. And then he'd read another one and he'd come back and he'd wait. And then when everyone was done, he gathered everybody around. He says, I want to thank you all for coming out here. Um, you know, it's been really great meeting you all. And, you know, have a great weekend because it was like Thursday. At the time he had, I was right next to him and he put his hand on my shoulder and he leans down and he goes, you stay here. Mm. And even then I could figure out that that was a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I was excited. Everybody leaves and he goes, okay, you got the part kiddo. And I was like, oh, wow, this is so great. And at that time, by that time, my dad and my brother had like driven to the set to pick us up because we didn't have our car there. And so my brother and my father were walking up and Michael and Matthew said hello. And then we went, we went home basically. 
And the thing was, is that I'd gotten the part on Thursday. I didn't realize that it was going to start work the next morning at 730. Holy so cow. I started work on Little House in my first episode at 730 the next morning in an episode called The Wolves, which is, <laughs> I always love the titles of Little House, you know, like he was only 12, The Wolves, The Fire. It's like <laughs> you kind of know what's coming. So these wolves were attacking the barn and in the barn was Mary, myself, Carrie and Laura. We had found these wolf pups and were like nursing them back to life, but the the wolves came for them. And so we were being attacked by wolves. So I auditioned on a Thursday night and by 7.30 the next morning, I'm sitting in a, a Hollywood you know, movie studio on Paramount in a loft with Melissa Sue Anderson, Melissa Gilbert, and Rachel and Sydney Greenbush, Rachel and Robin Greenbush, and these puppies. And I'm freaking out because I had just seen them two nights before as a fan. And I'm, <laughs> I'm asking Melissa Gilbert all of these fan questions. And she was great. She, she just like answered all of them and was wonderful. But I just couldn't get over the fact that I was here. I was with, you know, Laura Ingalls and we're fighting off wolves. Now, of course, there's a working aspect of it. There's work to be done and everything. And it's during the day. And again, this is different than than Maine. So now there's all these kids. You can hang out. You're hanging out. You go to school with them. So you're spending the whole day with them. So like by the end of the day, I feel like we're best friends hmm. and it, it's at this point, the second, I think it's the second day of work, I found out that, oh, no, no, this is not just an episode. It's a part that you get to come back for. <laughs> and so I didn't realize until my second or third day that I was uh, going to come back. And then it wasn't another couple episodes of me coming back that I realized that I was going to be, they had these, all these terms, there, was a, there were regulars and then there were semi-regulars. Right. And so I was a semi-regular by contract, but the way that the contract works is that they can also put you in as many as they want. And the first couple of years on that show, I just, I kept coming back. And so I felt like I was always there. So it went from watching the episodes on Wednesday to being <laughs> on the TV show on Friday oh. and having no idea of what, <clears throat> what had happened. And then for you, especially, you'll love this. So... Uh, the first episode, because I guess they were behind or for whatever reason, The Wolves was my first episode. The second one was The Creeper of Walnut Grove. And I still don't have an answer on this, but my first loop session for Little House, I had 230 loops. Oh, wow. Which was the entirety of my performance. <laughs> It was every single line I had. Yeah. There was wind. There was a helicopter. There was whatever it was. And so I forget the number of the stage, but of course, you've been on it. I've been on it. It's Sit Paramount with Glenn Glenn Sound, mm -hmm. the looping stage. I learned how to loop in, you know, the two days that I had to that I had to loop all of the lines of my of my character. And back then looping, I just did a looping job for Netflix, which I blew my mind. Everything's on a on a screen now and everything is in a uh, you know spreadsheet and so they just put the lines on the spreadsheet on the screen in front of you there's mm. no paper there's no lines there's no place to mark any notes or anything they put any notes you want on the screen and then you'll do it and because it's not literally a loop of film or a loop of tape 
they can practically make anything match. And I was looping some Czechoslovakian uh, crime show. <laughs> but when I was looping myself, I was looping, obviously, English, and I was looping my own lips and everything. And it was the same. It was a loop. It was a physical loop tape. Yeah. And we were, we were recording to tape. So you had to be accurate. You know, they could move it back one couple frames or wasn't even frames then you know so it's, anyways i learned how to loop because of that first two episodes is is yeah. little house where you and ike met no i went i don't know how we met your family i think I, your yeah. brother and i were friends more than because you were older and it felt yeah. like way older at the time now it's just yeah, a it couple does. years but... <laughs> yeah it did and i remember two things about al's brother ike he loved lord of the rings he had a <laughs> Um, what's a, when you paint with a, with a little air airbrush, um, an airbrush, you had an airbrush <laughs> and you're an amazing artist. I don't know if you still are doing any art, but you are seriously an amazing artist. Oh, and I just remember Ike was always like, you know, where's Ike? He's in his room to drawing. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. That was the thing, man. I was, I was way too serious a kid and I, I, I was always off on my own doing that kind of stuff. But, uh, but yeah, I can't, I can't remember either. And, and I, you know, it, it, it just, just seemed like all of a sudden our two families were spending time together and I don't know what the initial uh, connection was. And then we end up, you know, working together. Um, yeah. Which was fantastic. Cause I, I was a massive fan of little house. I mean, I still am. It's such a, such an amazingly, you know, beautiful show. It's, um, so it's just nice to hear that you were actually a fan first. I'm curious. So you're a fan. Yeah. You're talking about watching the show. Then all of a sudden you're auditioning for Michael Landon. Was that intimidating? Did you were you able to pull yourself out <clears throat> of that for the obviously for the moment you did you were able to do it well enough to get the part? But was that a little bit of an adjustment? Right. Just the just auditioning for him. For me, I'm in the moment. I'm never overwhelmed. I become overwhelmed afterwards when I when I can contextualize it. Yeah. In the moment, because for me, I was a I was trained to be a good little soldier. I was trained to be a good little actor, and that's what it is at that age for me. I yeah. you know there may be some kids that really do want to do this business from the time they're born. What I enjoyed about the business was that it was and is fun. And I now, as an adult, have way more reasons to love it. But at the time, it was more, you know, you don't do that, you do this. Mm -hmm. You don't, you know, and so one of the things was is that if you're, asked, if you're being asked to act or audition, whoever you're auditioning for, you're working on your, on your part and making sure you give the best performance possible. Yeah. It was only later that, you know, I later freaked out that, you know, I just met Michael Landon. And if you were, I mean, not that you won't, but if you know, there, there's also something about Michael that, you know, he's got this force field that 20 feet away from, as you're walking towards him, by the time you get to him, you're his best friend. He makes it okay. Yes. He makes it totally um, normal in a way yeah. that other people don't. And yeah, that, that he blew me away has a sense it. of humor that nobody is aware of. I wish he had ever done a comedy. He did some comedy in Little House, which was always my favorite because he was really good at it. Yeah. But 
he was so funny in person that and and funny for a kid he'd do stupid things that you know I'm, everyone knows you know the frog in his mouth thing or he'd tell these off-color jokes that kids love about snot and boogers and just like he kids loved him and he was just one of those type of guys that made it okay another guy like that was mark Harmon. mark Harmon makes you feel like he's lucky to be around you which i don't know how he does that mm. Well, Michael Landon was, you always saw that side of him on talk shows. I mean, talk shows, he was always hysterical when, uh, yeah. whenever he was like on Carson. Another one that I wanted to ask about is uh, Merlin Olson, because he just seemed like impossibly nice. And you did so many yeah. scenes with him. What, what was he like? Again, <laughs> I, don't know, I, don't know, I don't know where my parents kept me if they kept me in some sort of container away from the rest of the world until I was on set. I had no idea who Merlin Olsen was. I'm the hugest Rams fan now. And, you know, I follow football. But at the time, I knew he was a football player. And I'm going to be really, really honest. And I'm, I'm, I, I know I'm going to come off looking like a, a real jerk. As a kid actor, I'd been doing it, like, for seven years. And he had just started as an actor maybe two or three years beforehand. And I remember thinking, he's doing really good. Like, <laughs> I'm the pro yeah, who has, no, who has an idea of what's going on. And Merlin, <laughs> you know, who's a full-grown man, gone to college, is an economics genius, has made a career in the NFL that's unparalleled to this day. Aaron, you know, Donald <laughs> would wish that he had, you know, the career that Merlin had. And here I am, he's doing good. I'm proud of this kid. <laughs> so I remember, I, I just remember that that was a part of my relationship with him because I was on, I was on team Merlin. I was on his side because he was such an amazing man. Mm. And again, you know, this, like my father was really, really ill mm -hmm. and Merlin was the antithesis of an ill father. He was I mean, he had 250 or 260 pounds. He had come down in weight from, you know, from that. Mm. And he was still massive. See how on a human, there's this part of the wrist that gets thin. It, it's, you know, you're, it's fat here and then it gets thin and then your, your arm gets bigger. Merlin's just went from here to here and from <laughs> here to here. There was no thin part to the mirror. I just remember looking at, it, I was holding his hand one day. <clears throat> Going, where's your wrist? And he goes, don't need one. <laughs> oh, he also told me, again, I said, you know, um, and again, this is how I phrased it. I hear you're a football player. He goes, yeah, that's right. I did play football. I go, what was that like? It was, was it tough? And he goes, well, sometimes, you know, I played with a broken bone before. I go, did you ever break any bones? He goes, well, maybe I... I'm not really sure if I, you know, I didn't mean to. And I go, were you ever, you know, mean? And he goes, no, no, no. Although I did have a rule. <laughs> and that rule was everything outside my face mask was his. Everything inside my face mask was mine. <laughs> I go, what does that mean? He goes, well, if there was a finger in my face mask, I don't know if it got bit or not, but it was mine. <laughs> so... <laughs> He was, I mean, he was the the most gentle man. And to hear these stories, it was like him telling, you know, just like fanciful stories that don't really exist. Um, but he, he, because he was so compassionate, 
recognized my desire and need to have some sort of a, a healthy father figure. Mm. And he filled it without even asking or knowing. And I, I just about lost it. I'm using it right now. Um, just recently, you know, the last couple of years, I ran across an interview that he had done for a Little House DVD, which I had never seen. You know, we had all done these these interviews for Little House, and in his in his interview, he talks about how he basically exactly what we're talking about how he recognized that my father was ill and that I was clinging to him and that he was happy to be nice. happy to be that for me. Mm. Um, and then having never known that he knew or that, you know, again, when I look back on it, I'm remembering it as a kid. I just remember being, you know, Merlin was really sweet. Yeah. Um, and hold on a second. Sorry. Um, He, uh, he was he was there for me in a way that um, I could never ask for. Yeah. And uh, it yeah. was he was he was special. Yeah. And you know, for both for Michael and for Merlin, God, there's so many people in this industry, and these are the two guys that we lose. They're, you know, it's mm -hmm. like. Yeah. The good yeah. ones go, man. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how, so, how, how deflating then? I mean, when he, he decisions made for him to go on to Father Murphy, um, that, I mean, that basically ended the whole, you know, it's time in the little house, no? Yeah. Um, again, this is... Uh, looking back as an adult mm -hmm. who's been through stuff, you know, you don't realize what you went through when, at least I didn't, when I when I was that age. We had done an episode of Little House called uh, A New Beginning, um, which was uh, the Garveys after after my mom dies in a blind school fire. <laughs> Just process that for a minute. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> you know, classic Little House, hysterical episode. Yeah. Um, you oh, know, God. and anyway, so my mom dies. So we go off to, uh, I think it's Mankato or sleepy eye and, uh, he gets a, he buys a shipping business and he also becomes the town sheriff. So the idea was they're going to spend Merlin and me off into a TV show where Merlin's the sheriff of this town. And, you know, he's the gentle giant who solves things with his mind, not his fists. And it was a good episode. And I think they like Merlin and obviously wanted to do something, but they wanted it to be different than Little House. So they created Father Murphy, which of course was him as a, as a father of a minister and, you know, with a bunch of orphans. And even though it was set in the same period, of course I couldn't join that show because then it would be too confusing. Yeah. And so they had a, another cast of kids and I was really upset. I was really sad because it was because of the connection that I had with Merlin. It, it felt kind of like I lost, you know, a dad mm -hmm. and a job for sure. Hmm. Yeah. You know, Little House went on for another couple of years and my brother was on it, which was great. So I got to see everybody and I got to be on the set and I got to visit. So it wasn't like I lost the people, but, you know, not being able to be on the show 
yeah, it was a real bummer. Yeah. I mean, who who would want to not be on a TV show? <laughs> and especially because it was sort of like there was nothing nothing I could do. Yeah. Wow. Mm. You you just mentioned Mark Carmen and you know so you, you, then you went to the whole Mark Carmen stage of your life, I guess, you know, you filmed right. uh, Another Prince football of, player I had no idea about. Right. <laughs> you were like Prince of Bel-Air with him, Kirstie Alley, Dean Cameron, who we recently had on as well. Uh, you were then in the same group with one of my favorites, Summer School. And I guess I'm sure sick of me talking about that movie already because I mentioned it so often. I cannot express how much I loved it. <laughs> I think, I, think my, I have to vow to get the whole cast on at one point or another. <laughs> but you had Carl Reiner directing it. What was it like auditioning for Carl Reiner? Well, it was it was wonderful. Again, here's a guy who is so professional and has been doing it for so long that you don't feel nervous when you're around him. You feel taken care of. And the situation that I was in was I had done, as you said, there was a movie called Prince of Bel-Air mm -hmm. where I had auditioned for that extensively and then I finally got this TV movie and it starred Mark Harmon and Kirstie Alley. And then, as you as you say, Dean Cameron was also in it. Dean and I met there. We all met there. But when Harmon got summer school, he then asked them to bring in Kirstie Alley, myself, and Dean because he oh, liked wow. working with us. Mm. And I wow. auditioned. I didn't audition for the part I played. I played the part of Kevin, the football guy. But I auditioned for the part of Larry, the, the dancer, the, the, oh, wow. the dancer guy. Mm. And I remember we, I, I auditioned, the reading went well, and so they said, okay, well, let's see you dance, right? And so I did some dancing, and I go, congratulations, we're going to hire you for the football player. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember thinking, you know, Carl Reiner said that, and it was just sort of like, it was so hysterical. At first, I thought he was joking because, you know, but then I reflected, which, you know, didn't take too long. I can't dance, and I knew that, but he hired me, but he hired me for the football player, and then I finally got it. But, yeah, it was like, I think what happened was is that Harmon said, I like this guy, I want him to be in the movie, and we'll find a place for him. And, uh, you know, as far as uh, Dean goes, I think he's got a different story because he had worked with um, – uh, Amy on Fast Times, and she was going to be the director at one point. And right. So I'm not sure exactly how that all went down. Yeah. But it was a great time. Uh, Carl Reiner was an amazing director because he was so capable. There was so much, I won't say free time, because when someone's as capable as Carl Reiner, you're not waiting around for much, but there were periods of time where they had to light the set and you'd have to wait around for that. And he'd run these huge Simon Says contests <laughs> of which he was a master at. And I'd never, I would never end up thinking I would ever tell Simon Says stories about how good someone was <laughs> at it, but he'd have, he'd have the entire cast and some of the crew that weren't working. And he would slowly and just methodically pick everyone out, or pick them all off. And trick all of them. Like Simon says, do this. Simon says, do that. Simon says, do this. Now do this. And then they do that. And he goes, that ah, Simon didn't says you're out. And like, just, it was really, really, really amazing. And 
he just was again he was an older guy at the time directing this teen movie so there was a lot of heart in it which i've done other teen movies where they were directed by younger directors and you can you can kind of tell um the sensibility was a lot different and there's one great story i have with dean and carl we were at this beach and you know, when you're talking to your friends, you're talking about, you know, other actors that you know or things that have happened. And Dean and I were talking about an improv group, a comedy troupe that we both knew and how funny this guy was. And Carl Reiner comes up and we're on the beach. And you know how when somebody comes up and just sort of starts listening to your conversation and it's it's obvious they're just sitting there listening and then they sort of kind of become part part of the conversation where they add in their two cents. And so Carl's sitting there and he's listening. And then there's a beat in the, in the conversation about this comedy group. And Carl Reiner says, I remember Mel and Danny and yeah. And Woody, we were sitting around and we were working on this sketch. And of course he's meeting Mel Brooks, Danny Simon and Woody Allen mm -hmm. from again, your show of shows. And he just outclassed our conversation so astronomically <laughs> that Dean and I couldn't believe that he was telling us a story. But then, you know, you think about it and you go, but, you know, in his life, these are his friends that wrote comedy. They just happened to be the best comedy writers that ever existed versus <laughs> the clowns that we were talking about, you know, at some, at some stage down on Santa Monica. It was just, it was an incredible moment that, you know, he decides to tell this, share this story of these great guys writing this sketch with two guys, you know, on a beach somewhere. It was just, it was insane. Well, it looks like, I mean, not only is it an absolutely hilarious movie, but it looked like it just had to be a whole lot of fun to work on. Any other anecdotes that occurred while you were making it? It was a movie where because the story revolved around us doing fun things, it was probably the funnest shoot that I've ever had. We went to amusement parks. We went to Malibu Grand Prix. We were at the beach. Yeah. Malibu um, Grand Prix. I knew that's what it was because, uh, man, I missed right? that. I missed that the best go-kart track. It's not a go-kart track. It's like driving real race cars. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I No, I but exactly, right? Yeah. Oh, and man. it was the one up in Northridge off of yep. Nordoff, I think it oh, was. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and so, and when then we went to Knott's Berry Farm and we were at the beach. We never, <laughs> we rehearsed at Paramount, which was the studio that made it, but we never shot a day on the stage. We were all on location. Oh. And we shot out at this school in Chatsworth, which remarkably was named Hughes High. And it was off the street named Shoop, which is the main character's last name, which I never got out of them, whether they named him after the street or if it was just a coincidence. But they shot the Karate Kid there. It was like an abandoned school that they shot a lot of teen movies at. Hmm. And, and so we shot there and we shot uh, at all these wonderful places. And so... It was it was a great experience um, being a huge film and movie fan when I found out that I got to go to Rick Baker's studio to have mm. Rick Baker do my makeup for the big, you know, gross out scene um, and, and just to walk in there and to meet him and to work with his team to do that was another great experience. And then as far as 
for most of my the movies that I've done, whether it was like Heather's or um, Mame or Blazing Saddles or some of these other things, no one was expecting, you know, I wasn't aware of it for Blazing Saddles and Mame. No one was expecting it for these other movies. But for summer school, it was a Paramount summer release. And it, our trailer was tied to uh, Beverly Hills Cop. I think Beverly Hills Cop 2 or 3. I think it was 2. Um, so if you went to see Beverly Hills Cop 2, you'd see the trailer for Summer School, which, mm-hmm. again, before the internet, before anything, that was huge. It was huge just to see our movie trailer in a movie theater. I'd never really seen it. I'd never really seen myself in a movie theater. And so that was a great experience. Um, (laughs) We had the release of the movie was July 22nd, 1987, which was my birthday. And so I had a birthday pool party on the release date. They were going to also review it on Siskel and Ebert. And of course, in the movie, you know, Dave and Chainsaw are always giving thumbs up and thumbs down. So there was a connection there. And we all gathered around the television and they eviscerated the film. Oh, and gave us no. a thumbs down. Oh, no. Oh. Well, that's one of the things. You know, it was not a huge hit when it came out, but I think it's like gotten this whole second life later on. I, I mean, I think it's much more popular now. When did you realize that this thing has like legs? Because there's there are whole like sites devoted to summer school right now. Yeah. Uh, and, and not to be a prickly about it, because I, I get the history of everything. Summer School was a hit. Summer School did well for its time, mm-hmm. for its its channel. What I agree with you totally on is that it's become so much of a bigger thing than just a successful movie. When I did Heather's, Heather's was not a hit. Heather's was like it didn't make its budget back. But I think the opening weekend on Summer School was like $8 million, which at the time was a lot of money however it was not anything other than a throwaway comedy and then it ended up i think on tbs when tbs started doing those movies that you grew up on where they just kept playing them and people found it on on cable and then they just fell in love with it again or had never seen it before and it just became something really rewatchable when that was a thing again before streaming before you know there was all this content out there and with home video too so it was like it that was a big thing to be a part of and that was the idea that oh i guess you know you're not done with something nowadays it kind of because i from for most of our career for most of my career once you did it even on little house you know it it would go away you know, right. they'd rerun it on network and then it would go away. Later on with Little House, you know, obviously the the repeats on television, they just really never stopped. But it it, it wasn't like that all the time. In fact, Michael Landon told me this great story. I was, Mork and Mindy had just come out. And Mork and Mindy was doing great in the ratings. And I think at one point it was against Little House. And I said, Michael, are you worried about Mork and Mindy? He goes, no. And I go, why, how can you be so sure? Again, how can I, How because you're Michael Landon. That's how you can be so sure. Right. You're a genius. <laughs> but for me, I'm like, how, how do you know? You know, Robin Williams is amazing. You know, Mork is the biggest thing in the world. And he goes, well, but, you know, Mork and Mindy, they won't be around in 10 years. In 10, 20 years, you'll still be watching Little House. Hmm. And I said, how do you know that? And he goes, well, we're not, we're not timed. We're not. 
we're not connected to anything now. We're all already out of style. This is the 1780s. We're not dressed in anything that's going to age poorly. We're going to look the exact same way. And, you know, years later, I'm putting all this together. Of course, right. he knows this is a bonanza. You yeah, know, Bonanza sure. is still playing and his entire, you know, his entire life of performance is still playing. You can watch anything he's ever done on TV right now, anywhere. Um, and, and then later on, years later, I had the same conversation with uh, Don Belisario, who created JAG. And I was talking to him about the conversation with Michael and how he felt that it, it, it connected with JAG. And he goes, well, I can see what you mean, because in JAG, you're all in uniform. And the uniforms don't change. Yeah. So the only thing that's going to change, you know, you'll watch an episode of JAG and it looks the same as if they shot it today, except, you know, it's not an HD. It's, you know, four by three and there were no cell phones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, otherwise it looks the same. The, the uniforms are exactly the same. Every, every so often they, they talk about remaking summer school. Have you heard anything about that? I mean, last time I think I've heard Adam many Sandler different, was like the last one I heard was Adam Sandler right. wanted to remake yeah. it. And, you know, it's like, okay, I, it's such a, it's such a weird idea because, how do I say this correctly? Summer School was a, a formula movie. There really wasn't anything in it that like, and I compare it to Heather's. Let's say you're comparing it to Heather's. Heather's was like an out of the box, weird, where did that come from? kind of idea and execution summer school was i think the the perfect variant of a studio producing a comedy like it, it had all the plot points that you needed it had the right star it had the right you know look it was shot you know tom del ruth did an amazing job shooting it it was just like it was a product of a studio system that was great they they hit it on all the right levels so to remake it you're basically remaking something that was kind of like lucky to begin with i don't think that if you took any one thing away from summer school that it would be the same as it why people like it now having said that you could do a reimagination of it and and anything but you know, and I don't, I don't begrudge anyone. They did a reboot of Heather's on a, as a TV show, and they asked me to be in it, and and I kind of saw what they were doing, and I read the script, and I declined, mainly because I felt similar in the idea that, man, it was such a weird combination of things that made the first one successful, that I, I don't want to, I don't want to try to recapture magic mm -hmm. that isn't going to be there. Now, Andy did a great job because he was part of the TV. He was part of the movie. Uh, he was part of the, the stage show. And um, he he did uh, Witch Mountain. Now, right. when he did Witch Mountain, they did it different. They brought mm -hmm. in The Rock. They brought in a whole idea that was different with right. the same. And again, Witch Mountain has fantastical ideas and fantastical characters and you know great science fiction and all of these things that can be played with heathers in summer school were like you go to school and these kids are dumb and they got to take a test it's 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 not the same type of thing and by the way i loved i loved the not only the witch mountain films but you know the remake as well i thought they mm. did a really good job and 
you know, in the smallest area of, of Hollywood history, how many times are the original stars brought back into movies? And then how do they do it each time they did it? I thought you guys were great. I thought you oh, did a great job. Thank you. I I, we had a blast. A I thought it was, yeah, it was very clever what they did. And the whole concept of reimagining is is touchy because, you know, people fall in love with the original in in, in a way and they want they want that recaptured, but you just can't do it. It just, it, you just can't. Well, how did you so feel I, when I you heard point. they were going to do it? What did you think? Well, I heard, I had heard that, I had been waiting 10 years. I, I had heard about it back when, God, they had David Nutter from X-Files was one of the first oh, wow. directors attached. And he wrote a, he wrote a spec uh, script for the story and they didn't like it. And so it went through a lot of iterations before it kind of got to Andy Fickman and they came up with something that they thought, um, you know, was, was, was workable in some, in, in some way. So when Andy Fickman actually called me and said, here's what we're doing, you know, would you like to be involved? And I thought, absolutely. They're not trying to, they, they were, they were doing something fresh yet utilizing the same concepts. And so I thought they did an, an excellent job, which is, which was a tough remake because, you know, the part of the, well, I'm, I don't mean to go on so much, but the part of the thing about escape to which mountain was the mystery was in the kids learning who they were so by the time you're right. done with the film you know then the history tells you okay these kids are aliens so how do you how do you reinvent the mystery of the journey that these uh, these um children with special powers <clears throat> is going through and i thought i you know i thought Dwayne Johnson was great. I thought those kids were very talented. My God, they're 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 amazing performers. And it was just an honor. It was just an honor. I mean, you don't always get to do an original, then a remake, then be in a reimagining. You know, it's like the a trifecta in a way. So I was I was just yeah. thrilled to be a part of it, and I had a great time. I I loved what they did with our characters. They weren't they were our characters, but they weren't our characters. It was all very interesting. So, but I get your whole point about mm -hmm. about Heather's completely. Oh, I did want to ask about Heather's. I mean, what do you remember about reading that script? What, what is like a bizarre script that do you, how did you get involved in it? Do you remember like, oh, I got to do this movie? It, it, the way that I got involved with Heather's, um, they had sent the script to my brother for, to play JD, to audition for JD. And he read the script and he gave it to me and he says, I don't get this script. Will you read it and tell me if it's any good? And, you know, nothing on Matt, it, you know, it's not like he, you know, isn't, he's supremely talented and he's not an idiot, but the tone of the script and the script that we got was like 200 pages. Uh, Daniel Waters, who wrote it, wrote it in a photo mat booth about his little sisters and the way that they treated each other, uh, his sister and her girlfriends and how they treated each other. And he had a love of uh, Stanley Kubrick. And he mm -hmm. wanted this to be the Stanley Kubrick film for teenagers to the point where it, it's not like his pitch. He wanted Stanley Kubrick to direct it. He sent it to Stanley Kubrick. He wanted it to be like the three hour, this huge magna opus about high school. Mm. Um, so we got a version of that script, which if you read the script, you know, pre-editing, it broke down each and every kind of click that there was in school just like the very first scene in the cafeteria kind of introduces you to these types of ideas, the nerds, the jocks, you know, the kiss asses, the country club kids. <laughs> but the script explored each one of them 
much, much more. Each one got maybe 20 minutes. And so again, you'd have like this three hour movie. So the script was bloated and big and dark. And if you weren't going in with a black sense of humor, it wasn't funny. Obviously teen suicide and all of these things and bulimia and just the way they were talking to each other. And of course you didn't have the visuals, which costuming played such a huge part of that movie and the sensibility of the director, Michael Lehman played such a great sense. So you've got this big, huge script about teenage suicide where you're asked in, in this script, JD succeeds in blowing up the entire school and then every kid is at uh, prom in heaven. So everyone dies, you're a mass murderer and you know, hey Albert, wanna play this part? And so he read it <laughs> and he was like, I don't know about this. And so I read it and I go, man, this is hysterical. Um, he goes, I, I don't think I, I, I don't think so. He, he demurred from following up on it, but I called my agents and I said, look, I don't know what's going on, but I really want to, I really want to do this part. And I recognized the part of the, of the dumb jock as being the one I could do. And so I, I really wanted to play this character that I ended up playing and I kind of campaigned for it. Now mm. my campaign was just bugging my agents. They then got me the audition and <laughs> then on the auditions, I, you know, and that was one where we auditioned a lot. Um, you would audition and it took maybe two months. It felt like that. It may have been shorter, but I would go and I would read and then I would come back and I would come read with a different person. And then finally they had it down to me and um, Lance Fenton, who played the part of Kurt reading together. And then I, I read with another guy. And I remember, and again, of DVD extras, here I am in my own career. I'm finding out all of these things about my life through DVD extras. <laughs> I had been waiting to read. We had to, I had to read with two actors for the part. The one that I played the movie with and this other guy. And the other guy was on a soap opera on CBS, uh, a nighttime soap, and we were waiting for him. And he was running late. And, you know, I don't know about you, but for me, again, trained as a child to be an acting robot, you're not late. Mm -hmm. There's no excuse to be late. You have to be mm -hmm. there early. If, you, and you, if you're early, you're late. So I just didn't have a lot of respect for this guy. He comes in, good looking guy. And, you know, he was good and he was nice enough. I mean, he was a really nice guy. He was just late. And so I kind of put that aside, but still it was like kind of okay. And then on the DVD extras, I'm, I'm watching this thing. And they start talking about how they had all of these different people at the table reads that they didn't cast, but you know, nowadays you'd go, why didn't you cast so-and-so? They were at the table read. And they go, well, there's one guy who was at the table read. He really wanted to be in it. Um, he was doing this nighttime soap, but you know, we had him read for one of the athletes and it just it didn't work out. And that was Brad Pitt. Ah, we were gonna <laughs> so, ask you about that. <laughs> yeah, Brad Pitt was the guy that I read with. Oh, he didn't get the part, <laughs> which just to every actor out there, you know, I, I've seen it. I read with Brad Pitt and he didn't get the part. Like, how is that possible? But it is. It's just, that's the way it goes. But here I am, you know, like dumb actors, not even knowing that I'd read with Brad Pitt. Um, again, nice enough guy. He was late. So, uh, 
I have to say that my daughters love that movie. And, they, you know, my youngest was so excited that I was going to speak to you based on Heather's. <laughs> <That was>, <laughs> <laughs> so I do want to ask briefly about, you know, you, you were in Spider-Man, the animated series, which I loved that series. So what was that like? Oh, I mean, me you're, too, you're, man. I'm so you're, glad. You, you played <laughs> Flash Thompson. So you're, you're part of the MCU. I mean, what, how much fun was that to do? Again, it was such a blast. I had gotten into voiceover and I'd been auditioning and I went up and I auditioned for Spider-Man and I really, I'm a big, huge comic book collector back in these doors here is my comic book collection of which the most of them are Amazing Spider-Man. I have, I have a huge Amazing Spider-Man collection. He's the guy that I recognized as me inside the comics and I loved it. So reading for that that animated show was huge and even though there wasn't an mcu even though there wasn't anything like that they were just beginning to do animation on fox for this big huge um, animation block and the guy that was writing a guy named john semper wanted to do what they did in the comics which was a continuing storyline with episode episodes that you could watch but that things continued which was unheard of at the time for television and for animation. Um, and so I auditioned for this thing. I was, again, really excited. They called and they offered me the part of Flash, which I couldn't get over. I said, yes, I'm a thousand times yes. It was so thrilling. I remember exactly where I was. I was making a U-turn to try to get somewhere else right in front of the Tower Records on Sunset when my agent <laughs> called or actually he texted me and I, you know, cause there were no phones back then. It was just a text, right. you know, you got Spider-Man call me and I called him and I found out, you know, at the tower records there on sunset, which no longer is there. Um, and I was just so thrilled. And then when we recorded, uh, we recorded like a radio play. So the entire cast was there. Um, and then when I found out that Mark Hamill was going to play the hobgoblin, I kind of lost my shit, like un, <laughs> un, un, in every uncool way possible. You know, I told myself the day of, I said, okay, Mark Hamill's going to be in there. Mark Hamill's going to be there. You're not going to ask him anything about Star Wars. You're a professional. <laughs> You're a total pro. And it was within two seconds that I walk in. I'm like, so with, with the lightsabers. <laughs> <laughs> how can you help and, yourself and like, I'm sorry I, I couldn't I couldn't yeah. it was the most ridiculous ridiculous thing um I, you know I became literally everyone who has ever come inside of two feet of Mark Hamill and to his credit he, he has these questions asked to him multiple times a day but he made me feel like it was the first time he'd ever answered that question the first time he'd ever had the conversation and I calmed down afterwards because of that, because it felt like, okay, so he's not going to vanish, you know, by the end of the day, he's not just going to poof out of existence. I can maybe talk to him a little bit later. I'll calm down. And I calmed down because of him. And of mm. course, if you follow him on Twitter, the guy's just, you know, grounded and amazing. And, yeah. and so again, compassionate person who understands what it's like to, he himself is a fan, so he kind of gets it. But the the experience on that show, and I have it somewhere in my closet, we got, as you usually do, um, a crew jacket. You know, sometimes the crew, the production will make crew jackets where you, they put the logo on the back, and then you put your name up front. And 
I remember thinking, okay, it's going to be a Letterman's jacket. So instead of my name, I put Flash on it. So I've got a Flash Letterman jacket awesome. um, from the show. And I just, I mean, again, with streaming, I never thought I'd see them again because I don't, I don't know where you would buy them. I don't know how you get them. But now they're on Disney Plus, And I was yeah. watching them yeah. a couple months ago going, oh, my God, there they are. It's, they're all right here. Mm. Yeah. And he talked about bringing any of the the voice cast into the MCU is like cameos at least. Uh, no, no talk to me. Although I've signed and forwarded a ton of petitions online to bring the show back because they're bringing back uh, X Men '89. Yes, and mm. you know there's many people that love the show and would love to see it. Of course, I would. I mean, not only is it right a job, but I love it. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it was a fun. A fun variation, and what I loved about the uh, the the, the uh, what well, wasn't the very what I loved about the variation, what I loved about the production was it was so um, so much like the comics. It looks like they took the genre meta drawings and made them the the character designs for the actual people, mm-hmm. and I, I just it was it was really really amazing. You know, to work with Hank Azaria and and Ed Asner and Mark Hamill and, you know, just all these great people. Yeah. My God. Well, let's jump ahead to Jag, another big sore spot for me regarding you. You got a series. (laughs) It it runs for 10 years. No auditioning. That was when I really, really, really started to hate you. Um, It's even on like lists of longest running series. How did that come about for you? You're going to hate me, man. Um, <laughs> well, I've, I've already established that. <laughs> so there's the, again, my favorite is the recasting because it has to happen quick. So there's uh, none of that long drawn out stuff. Mm. And then for JAG, it was during pilot season. And I was a huge Magnum PI fan literally know all the episodes and a Battlestar Galactica fan, a Black Sheep Squadron fan, a Tales of the Golden Monkey fan. Um, I knew who Don Belisario was. I was so excited to be auditioning. And during pilot season, for those who don't know, it's a very, it was, I don't even know if they do it anymore. It's a very short period of time where (laughs) every actor goes up for every show and it's like this big salmon feeding frenzy of trying to get a job and trying to get the actor. And so on one hand, if you're a hot actor, you could have a really good pilot season where everyone's bidding for you and your price goes up. Uh, for you know the producers, you're seeing every available actor. So you know if you're not a hot actor, if you're just an actor trying to get a job, there's a thousand other guys going up for your part. And the main thing that they're focusing on is the main cast, the main people that they're going to have to put under contract uh, for the TV series. And when you do a pilot, you have to sign a contract to, uh, you know, your services are paid for, for the acting of the pilot itself. And then you have to negotiate if that pilot is picked up, what you're going to be paid for each episode after that. So let's say, these are fake numbers, okay? Because I don't know what where everything is at nowadays. But let's say you get paid ten thousand dollars for the pilot, um, and then you will get paid seventy five hundred dollars for each episode that you do after that. 
if a show becomes a hit, lots of people have the opportunity to renegotiate because it's become this huge hit and then they can raise their price to $20,000 an episode. And, you know, that's kind of how the business goes. So they were shooting, they were casting this during pilot season. So they needed to find the guy to play Harm, the lead, and the woman to play his partner, Kate. And then there was a part for like some military general or admiral that would give them their missions. But mainly it was these two characters. My character was a guest star on the pilot. Mm. All I was supposed to do was be the PAO officer of the ship that the guy, the main lead guy, lands on and solves the crime. The pilot was a two-hour pilot, so it was a two-hour movie. And so they were auditioning for the other aspects of the show. And why I went into such a big, long story part of it was when you're casting the guest cast on a pilot, there's no contract. They just hire you. And I mean, there's a contract for the pilot, but there's no extended negotiations because you're you're never going to be seen again. What happened was, is that it took them a while. I auditioned once for Don Belisario. I did the the pre-read with the casting director, and then they had me come to producers, which is your final audition if you're in the guest cast, because the producers can choose who they want for their guest cast and they don't have to have network approval. If you're casting a regular starring part on a TV show, you have to have the network's approval because they're going to be in business with this person for years. But they didn't have to do that with my character. So I auditioned for producers. I auditioned for Don Belisario. And he goes, okay, great. By the time I got to, I had to do another audition at my voiceover agents. So by the time I got to my voiceover agents, I'd gotten a call saying, okay, you booked a part on Jag, Mm. which was a guest starring part that shot for two weeks. And it was great. I got a part. It was still pilot season. So I went up for another pilot, which I did get called uh, The Last Frontier, which was a Fox TV pilot, which was, this was during the time when Friends was on and everyone was like doing, it's Friends in an elevator. It's Friends on a boat. It's Friends in a restaurant. And so ours was, it's friends in Alaska, like just, you know, six people. And it was all young actors with me and Anthony Stark and John Terleski and just a bunch of great actors that, you know, it was sort of like we'd hang out at a bar in, in Alaska. And so we did that pilot and that pilot, I was, had to be network approved. So again, that was a huge auditioning process, a huge negotiation having to figure out what you were going to be paid. They ended up picking up the pilot for The Last Frontier. We did eight episodes for Fox. So we did that at the same time that JAG was doing their pilot. So I had this job as a guest star on JAG and a a regular part on this pilot, The Last Frontier, hoping The Last Frontier would get picked up because that's where my money was. Right. And that's what happened. They picked us up. We went and did our episodes. It was, I got this great TV show. It was a very funny character. I was really happy with it. And Jag was this guest star part that I did on this really big TV show. I mean, huge amount of money. I think at the time it was the most expensive pilot. I think they said they spent like $4 million on it in the nineties, which again, Mm, only because of Don Belisario. Yeah. Um, and we went down 
to uh, Corpus Christi and we shot on a retired aircraft carrier. And it was just this really big thing. But again, I was just a cast. I was just a guest cast. Here's what happened. Uh, 58 years into this story. Um, Don Belisario was the writer and director. And so he was on set directing and David James Elliott and I were doing our scenes. And it was also with uh, um, the woman who played Kate Pike was Andrea. Andrea Parker played Kate Pike. And so we were down in Texas and we were doing our stuff and should I turn this off or close the window a bit? <laughs> Sorry. There we go. Um, so we're down in Texas. Yeah, and, you were squinting. Working... What's that? <laughs> you were squinting. Let's, yeah, let's squint. Exactly. <laughs> get, let's get Thank your eyes you, open. Lucy. Thank you. Um, <laughs> she's still taking care of me. Um, so we're down there, and our chemistry between the three of us is really good. Um, and you can't ever fake chemistry. It's just sort of like you get along with a person and the camera catches it. And then it looks like there's going to be, you know, a, a possibility where there's, you know, interaction between these characters. At the time, I was at the Groundlings doing improv comedy. And because it was a guest cast type of role, I, I felt free to just like add things that I thought were funny, mm. um, which I would never do and lose a real life job. This was sort of like, I've got this other pilot. What am I worried about? I'll just you know, try to bust a couple of jokes in here and see if it works. And it kept working. So at the end of shooting, um, Don Belisario says, I'd like to add you to the, to the show. And I said, I, I, Don, I would love to, but I got, I got this other pilot that I'm under contract for. And he goes, well, if it doesn't go, then we'll add you to the show. But then the show for Last Frontier was picked up, which was great. I mean, I mean, if I if I could only have that type of problem now. <laughs> um, here I was, you know, with the embarrassment of riches. And so I go off and I do the, uh, the Last Frontier on Fox. They go off and they do JAG on NBC. And then this weird thing happened. And again, it's unique to JAG. I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know if anything has ever happened like this before. There's been TV shows that something like this has happened, but not like JAG. So JAG has its first year on NBC. They took the pilot and uh, Andrea Parker, who was in the pilot, one of the guys at NBC wanted someone different. He wanted, and it came to me, the story came to me like this. They don't want a brunette, they want a blonde. So we have to hire a blonde for JAG. They hired a blonde for the first season of JAG. And then they hired Andrea Thompson for another show on NBC called The Pretender, which, and you know, she's a great actress. She's been around, she's working right now. Um, had nothing to do with her acting, just they wanted a blonde. So the show airs on NBC first season, and then it's kind of like in not doing that great towards the end of the, of the season, my show has aired and has been canceled. We did our seven and then they canceled it and they said, thanks. We don't need a friends in Alaska. We're going to do something else. So I said, okay. So then I remember again, I remember now we, uh, you know, we had cell phones. I get a, or car phone. I had a car phone. Um, I'm driving down Melrose and I get a call from Don Belisario's office 
And Dom gets on the phone and goes, Patrick. I go, yeah. He goes, you ready to do a real TV show? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, sure. And he goes, okay, well, I'm going to add you to the last episode of the first season. And then we'll add your character in the second season, right? So... I go to the last episode. I go to the I go to the set, and it's down at the the docks down in Long Beach. We're shooting on a ship, and it's the you know the my first day. And Don's going to hire me. I'm going to be a regular on JAG, but they're going to reintroduce my character. So he gathers everyone around, and you know he he's got me right next to him. And I'm thinking, wow, this is really, you know, they're really treating me extra special. That's really nice. He gathers the entire cast and crew around to announce that I'm going to be a, a regular on the show. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, we've been canceled. <laughs> <laughs> I did not, I wasn't aware of this, goes, but don't worry. Don't worry. I'm going to New York and we're going to be on ABC by tomorrow. And so we shot for that. It was a night shoot. And then at the end of the night shoot, he got on a plane and he went, he flew to New York. He was going to talk to ABC. And the plan was that Jag was going to be somehow connected to football. Like when football was off, Jag was going to go on and that type of thing. Hmm. He gets in, he, he lands in New York and he gets a call from Les Moonvies, who's over at CBS. <laughs> and Les says, I hear you're talking to ABC. <laughs> if you drive to... BlackRock now, which is the CBS headquarters in in New York, um, and don't go to ABC. I guarantee you a season on the air at CBS. So Don told his limo to drive to CBS. He drove to CBS. Uh, Les Moonves picked up the show, and then we were on CBS. Here's the funny thing. Don wanted to get Andrea Parker back because he loved her and wanted her for the show, Jag. She couldn't do it because she was working on NBC on The Pretender. Oh, <laughs> so God. it's like the same the same people that stopped her from being on NBC, now she was on NBC and she couldn't leave NBC. So they needed to find a new girl and the body of the week in the last episode that we had done, the one that I was about to be introduced and the one that he said that we were canceled on, was a girl by the name of Catherine Bell. And Catherine mm-hmm. Bell played this character that literally dies before the credits. And she wrote a letter to Don and said, I want to be, you know, the new the new partner to harm. And she auditioned and boom, she got the part. And, you know, I won't say the rest is history, but what happened was is then we were on CBS. They kind of rebooted the show. They came in with a new guy to play the Admiral, which was John Jackson. And so then they had the idea of, okay, so it was, you know, uh, Mac and Harm and their assistant, me, Bud Roberts, and then the uh, the Admiral, by John, played by John Jackson. And then we, we ended up doing 10 years of that show. And then somewhere along the line, they wanted to do a, a spinoff. And so he created NCIS with Don McGill, one of the writers on our show. And, of course, NCIS is still on the air. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's like it's huge juggernaut of a yeah. hit, which, you know, I just... And again, the little house or the, not the little house, but the summer school thing comes into play. <laughs> this is the story that I know. Okay. I don't know if this is true. I know it's true for me. I don't know if it happened like this on the other side. Don and I are in, um, 
in uh, at lunch. And Don's sitting there, I go, what's going on, Don? He goes, well, I just, I, I turned in NCIS and I, I wanted, I wanted Scott Bakula. Scott said no. Scott didn't want to do it. I'm looking for a new guy. He goes, do you know anybody? <laughs> like, yeah, like I'm going to give you a recommendation. <laughs> Shane Sanuko. Um, so I go, well, Mark Harmon's on the West Wing. He's playing like some military guy who's like this, you know, secret service agent. And Don goes, who? And I go, Mark Harmon. He goes, ah, I don't know who Mark Harmon is. I go, well, check out West Wing. You know, and of course, I don't want to insult Don, but Don's a busy guy. He doesn't have to know who everybody is at the moment you're talking to him. So about a week later, he sees me and he goes, hey, Patrick, I solved that answer problem. I go, oh, what happened? He goes, I found this guy named Mark Harmon. <laughs> so they cast they cast Mark Harmon, who's perfect for Gibbs. And then we did the show, uh, you know, the backdoor pilot on JAG. And then we shot right next to each other for as long as JAG and NCIS were together. We shot out in Valencia. It's some warehouse that, you know, is across from Magic Mountain. But, yeah, that's... Uh, that's the incredibly long story. That is that Jack. is absolutely amazing. amazing. I mean, you know, even I, I look, you know, I've been a part of Hollywood as long as you've been a part of Hollywood. I still love hearing stories like this, you know, whether I've been involved with them or or not cuz you know, everyone out there thinks these things. I always say, you open a box and there's a series. It's just there, right? You know, as, a, as, a, as a package and it's not like that, man. It's 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 a crazy right business with so many you know dodges and turns and uh wow you know great stuff great stuff thanks for by sharing the, by the way i did watch last frontier as well i, I remember liking that show. oh really <laughs> yes i did watch I, you know I, I love that show i thought it was so much fun i thought i i mean i had a great time on it i ended up playing another military guy he the character i played in that was an air force guy and I just, I thought it was a, a bunch of fun. I mean, it was definitely a, a Friends ripoff. Literally, the first episode is called The One with the Friends theme. So oh, they my weren't, gosh. They weren't, you know, and, and you know, they weren't playing around. But I remember being upset when that was canceled. I, I, just, I just wanted to know, why, why, why did JAG come to an end? Why did what? JAG come to an end. Uh, you know, I wish I knew for real again. It's so weird how in this day and age, we're on a TV show for 10 years. And the weird thing is, dude, I've been on NCIS since then. Yeah. And so JAG ended in 2005. And I think the last time I was on NCIS was maybe three or four years ago. They built these sets out in Valencia. They built a ship set that we would redress every day or every episode to be whatever ship we were supposed to be on, whether it was an aircraft carrier, a frigate, a battleship, whatever it was, they would just redress the hallways to look like that particular ship. And they're still using that ship. They're still using that same <laughs> set on NCIS. So it's like when I went back, here I am now, it's 10 years after JAG has been canceled and it's still the same set with the same crew. Wow. You know, like mem memories of Little House. <laughs> they took our crew, they took our sets, and I'm still not on the show. But uh, what happened with Jag, you know, you would think that after 10 years and, you know, everyone talking to each other, you would know the real reason. The actual answer is, I think uh, there was a, uh, 
money negotiations between David and the network. And when you're in the 10th year of a TV show that's a big hit, you can either bite the bullet and pay it or try to recast, which is kind of what they tried to do. Um, There was also an episode called Jag San Diego uh, in the last season of Jag, where what they were trying to do was lower the age group because uh, statistically our, our, our audience was dying. Not like, you know, metaphorically, but literally because Jag was oh, an God. older skewing show. So NCIS was geared to be like for 30 to 50 instead of 40 to 70. And then they wanted to, you know, age down. So they, they came up with a show called Jag San Diego, where it was going to be Mac and this new guy, Chris Beatham, who played him. And, you know, like, a, a, he looked a lot like David, wasn't as tall as David, um, nice enough guy, good enough actor. But like, again, you know, who wants to be the replacement for the hero of your show? But that's the job that he got. And so they were going to do it basically a version of Jag in San Diego where they could put people in bikinis and have it be younger and... You know, to be honest, it, it, it sounds a lot like NCIS Hawaii. I haven't seen it. I don't know what that show is about. But the idea of like putting it in what they call a blue sky location where you can always have these beautiful um, locations and this mm. beautiful look so that people all across the country, whatever time of year it is, they get to see this beautiful like Hawaii Five O type of thing where mm. or Magnum or whatever where it's just always pretty. They did that pilot or behind, you know, backdoor pilot that didn't go and then there was an issue with david and his money and then basically they just didn't tell us we weren't they never told us we were canceled oh wow what they did was they just we finished the episode and we did the episode because no one knew what was going to happen so the last episode no spoilers the last episode is me flipping a coin Mm -hmm. about what's going to happen to harm and mac whether they which one was going to quit the service and they were going to get married, but one of them had to quit the service and get married somewhere. And so we were flipping the coin to find out where. Literally a direct thing that we were doing, flipping the coin to find out if we were coming back or not. Mm. I had just renegotiated for two years. So contractually, it looked like they were coming back for at least another year. We had planned for that. And then they just never picked up the show's option. It was weird. It was the weirdest thing. It wasn't like, you know, we're canceling you. You're done. It was sort of like, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess not. I guess, no, I think we're done. It was so wow. weird. Wow. And, it, you know, I got the call again. I remember where I was. I was in, you know, um, what was the name of the place? It's a place where you buy wicker baskets and candles. And I get a call from Don. And he says, yeah, we're not being picked up. So, thanks. <laughs> Well, we got we got to get Harmon to get you into NCIS. So. Exactly, NCIS indeed. We you have two appearances on Apple TV series coming up uh, for All Mankind and The Offer. Both look, I, I I watched All Mankind, but The Offer looks like incredible to me also. So I can't. Can you tell us about those shows and your appearances in them? Oh yeah, absolutely. So The Offer is actually on Paramount Plus, oh, um, and it's about it's about the making of The Godfather, mm-hmm. and. Um, Again, one of the shows that before I got the audition for, I had been reading about in the trades and was just like going, I can't wait to watch this. This looks really good. It's got a great big cast. It's got, you know, it's the story of 
uh, Al Ruddy, the producer, and all the things that they had to go through to make the uh, the movie The Godfather. My part is admittedly very, very small. But, you know, it's like it was great fun to do. Um, and then the part for uh, for All Mankind, I play a senator who's grilling one of the main cast members uh, at a Senate subcommittee. And again, most of these shows nowadays, especially for All Mankind, can't say anything about it. It's all under NDA. Um, but I can confirm that I'm in it and that I can't wait to see it. I haven't seen it yet. Um, but I'm a big, again, a big fan of that show, which surprisingly, weirdly, strangely, when we used to shoot Little House, we shot it at Paramount. And then we moved from Paramount to what was then MGM Studios, which is now Sony Studios. And For All Mankind shoots on the same stage that we shot Little House on. Oh, wow. Uh, and so, again, it's just one of those things where yeah. it's the same physical location in a completely different world. You know, I, I had this big post on Twitter where this one stage, stage 15 at MGM, um, no offense to Sony, but it's MGM. Um, <laughs> yeah. When we moved there, we did an episode with Ray Bolger, who played the Scarecrow from uh, Wizard of Oz. And during the time that we were there, they were doing some, you know, remodeling and they had to take this big, huge heater this oil powered heater off the set or out of the set and it'd been there forever. And so when they removed it, whatever they had put, you know, the floor part of whatever they had installed it on was still there. And what they found underneath this heater was the yellow brick road still painted on the floor of the stage oh where they had God. shot wizard of Oz. Oh my God. And it's like, are you kidding me? Now, the mind-blowing part about being a child actor in the 70s, which you absolutely know because of your credentials, is the people you worked with. I mean, mm. Betty Davis, come yeah. on. And so Ray Bolger happened to be guest starring on the show when they did this. So oh. we're in this little classroom. I'm getting goosebumps. We're in this little classroom. And Ray Bolger comes in, who we knew was the scarecrow. I mean, we were all freaking excited. He goes, kids, I want to show you something. So all those Little House kids go over to the corner of the stage where they took off this heater and there's this faded yellow brick road because this is where we shot Wizard of Oz. And it's like the scarecrow telling oh. you that that's what they, sh that, and, 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 and it's right there. The, the, the tangibility, you know, I don't know about you, you, Jonathan, but Ike and I, I don't know, man, there's this weird physical connection to the places that we worked that have existed in all these different things. You know, we, I went nuts on Twitter with the the Western Street that we shot at at Little House that was at Paramount that they literally tore down into a parking lot. Um, and, you know, and the fact that we're shooting on a stage that they shot Wizard of Oz on. Um, that, that then now For All Mankind is shooting on. When my wife and I, Tina, when we created a TV show called um, See Dad Run, uh, our star of the show was Scott Baio. And so because we were shooting at Paramount, they wanted to use Stage 19, which is where they shot Happy Days. And then I later found out that, you know, they also shot a movie called Citizen Kane there. Hmm. So you're shooting in this stage where... Citizen Kane is being shot and I'm shooting a Nickelodeon sitcom. 
Yeah. It's just, it's too bizarre and so amazing and wonderful. And it's like, you look at it and you go, of course, some of these studios, man, nowadays they're rebuilding and there's a lot of money going into it. But for the most part, from the seventies, nothing had been changed. The, the, just more layers of paint. It's yeah. the exact same place. Yeah, it blows me away because I, I mean, Disney is, of course, my was my home away from home, and and yeah. being aware of the stages I was working on because Disney's a small studio; it doesn't have a whole lot of stages, but the yeah. stages are historic. I mean, you know, every single movie they made were shot, you know, by and large or partly partially on the same stages that 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 I worked on. But one of my favorites, and growing up, I loved going to 20th Century Fox because. Um, the Fox lot still has pieces. And I think to this day, I haven't been there obviously in probably a couple decades, but they had a large portions of the Hello Dolly set up um, yeah. that, you know, right in the middle of the studio and mm. they started right. tearing it down a little bit at a time, but they left part of the L train there and, and all of yep. that. And so every time you went to Fox and you just drove through, you were dr driving through the Hello Dolly set for goodness sakes. It was just, it's just extraordinary. Yeah. Well, you, yeah, you they have at just, I mean, sadly, they've torn that down. Oh, really? They, they, oh. They've actually taken it down. But Man, again, that's... again, the 20th lot, you know, and then you yeah. have the Nakatomi Plaza, which is the real life building there, which is on the Fox lot. Yeah. And it, it's just, it's, yeah, it, it's yeah. amazing. And Golden Oaks Ranch, which I'm sure you grew up in. We grew up there as well, yeah. the Disney Ranch. Um, you know, just how many things have been shot in the same location mm -hmm. is, is quite amazing. Yeah, you know, it's completely magical. Well, jumping, God, you've been so generous with your time, I, I, but I want to get some other stuff in. Your website, workingactorschool.com, is absolutely fantastic. I am so glad you're, Thanks, you're involved in this, and I'm sure you know your students are as well. So you teach, uh, you teach your teaching classes both in person and virtually. Tell us something uh, a bit about that. Uh, well, it, it's actually all virtual. Um, oh, it, it started okay. during COVID. And so okay. it's all virtual. It's all done over Zoom, um, which allows for a lot of great new opportunities. The idea being, you know, you don't have to live in Hollywood to train in Hollywood. It literally mm. allows you to turn on your computer and go to an acting class that would have, you know, prior to COVID only happen in person in Hollywood. Um, and based on all the conversations that we've had, the idea that I know what it's like to be a child actor. I know what it's like to be a teenage actor and an adult actor. I've had direct experience with all of these aspects of it. And it became something of an idea in my head. Like, well, okay, then I can, I can speak to all these different eras. And one of the things that I learned as a, as a child actor and as a training actor is that when you go to an acting studio, you're very well insulated. It's not really the same as when you're on a set. And that's the way it should be. When you go to a studio, you want to be protected. And basically, it's like, got you know, training wheels on everything. But as you know, let's say you work on a scene. And in, in class, you put up that scene with your partner. It's very quiet. The teacher is giving you respect. The other students are giving you respect. On a set, it's loud. And it's a place of work. And the, the, the lighting guys are working their butts off. And so it takes maybe two hours to get everything done. The director's having a fight with somebody. 
And so he comes to the set and maybe he's not having a great day or maybe your co-star isn't really completely there. And you've got 20 minutes before the, the sun sets to do this big emotional scene that in a studio setting, I mean, in an acting class setting, you'd have all this protection. But on the set, you don't because you're a working actor. And that's why it's a working actor school. The whole, the whole you know, prism which I'm looked at, you know, which I'm putting this through is teaching what it's really like to work on a real life set. Yeah. Teaching you the realities of, okay, so nothing's going to be perfect. I, on, on JAG, when we did the pilot, like I said, we were on a retired aircraft carrier. And what they did in order to mimic the active aircraft flight deck was they got a jet engine. And before each scene, they would turn the jet engine on so that it would blow the backwash at us and have the sound. I'd never been around a jet engine. <laughs> I had the first line, you know, it's like, sir, ma'am, if you follow, if you follow my six, I'll take you inside. They turned the jet engine on. I, I didn't know what my own name was. It was the loudest thing I'd ever heard. It was like way too close to me. I couldn't really stand. You can see, you know, the, the, the force buffeting all of us trying to keep our, and so it's like, that's, that's the type of thing that you know you need to deal with as a working actor so again long story short the idea here is is that i'm bringing the idea of what it's like to be a working professional into the classroom so that you can focus on the things that are important to when you get the part obviously we, we focus on getting the part and how to audition and nowadays you know how to self-tape and how to take care of that and again because of being a child actor we also talk a lot about how to protect yourself and how to take care of yourself because there's a lot of emotional damage that can be done through this business because no one is taking care of you so you need to take care of yourself mm. and you need to be able to know how to take care of yourself so that you're able to you know open yourself up emotionally while at the same time knowing that you're on a work site and no one's there, you know, it's like if if every, you know, carpenter had to open up their deepest, darkest secrets while they were framing a house and then, you know, no one's there to protect them. Yeah. It's just no. it's, it's not it's not it's not really done that way. So workingactorschool.com, you can go there and check it out. We've got basic, intermediate, and advanced courses. We have them for kids and for teens and for adults. And they're basically the same idea, except they're geared towards the type of work that you're going to be doing based on that that age group. And of course, the, the kids' classes aren't as adult as the adult classes. As an adult, you're dealing with issues and other things that have nothing to do with being a kid. So yeah. they're different in that way. But I started doing it, and I was really surprised at how well uh, it, 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 it works over, over Zoom, just like this here. Um, and then I kind of figured out, oh, when we were kids, we had TV and we had movies. Now we have phones and we have YouTube and we have Snapchat or Instagram. We have all of these other smaller screens. So there is a lot of comfort that people have with this technology now which again if you're a kid and or an adult even and you want to start a youtube channel 
is perfect for you. I mean, it's the same. There's nothing stopping you from being a celebrity now from a room in your house and never, yeah. ever leaving it. For us, it wasn't even possible. I mean, yeah. <laughs> a legend in your own mind, maybe, but, you know, no one's going to see it. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I appreciate the, the you asking about it. Workingactorschool.com. It's a real, you know, it's a real great place to try if you ever wanted to be an actor. Um, I'll walk you through it. Um, and it's, but it's, yeah, it's, it's just... your point about YouTube and, and, you know, anyone who wants to do co any kind of content creation through the force of the personality, you still have to learn the fundamentals and, and, and a lot of the same techniques that, that, you know, we all had to, had to learn or study or whatever to succeed. So, I mean, that's a, that's a really good point. I mean, you don't necessarily have to go to Hollywood to put those skills to use. There's so many ways to take advantage of it. Yeah, now. It's a really great idea. I'm really glad you're oh, doing yeah. it. I think it's fantastic. Thank good you. Approach. Thank you. You, yeah, you also, I saw on, on cameo now, which I love cameo. I, I got one for my daughter. <laughs> once. How, how is that? Is that fun interacting with fans for you? I mean, I didn't have any idea of what it was going to be like again. You know, I'm older, and so my connection to these things was like, okay. I mean, I'm a computer guy. I can understand the technology. But when I started doing cameos, it was it was really fun because you're able to connect with people. And then they started doing these things called cameo calls where you can actually have a one-on-one -on -one conversation which is my preferred way to do it because then I can see the person and we can talk and I'm not guessing at what it is they're kind of interested in. Um, but yeah, the whole idea of interacting with people on a one-to-one -one basis in a controlled environment, sure. that's the other thing too. I think that with the, uh, the structure within Cameo allows me to be my most personal with you because it's in a structured environment. Mm -hmm. Um, as opposed to, you know, just randomly having people approach you where, how many times is it goes, oh, hey, you're that guy. Where do I know you from? And you list your entire resume and they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, like, by the end of it, so you feel times. like, yeah. It's like, <laughs> well, what? Dang it. I thought I, I, I thought you knew me. <laughs> so at least with cameo, you know that they know you. Right. No one's ever going to go to your cameo and go, I don't know where I know you from, but here's, you know, here's 50 bucks. <laughs> no, it's great. I, I saw, I saw, I watched a couple of the clips there with you do with fans and it's fantastic. Uh, so I really recommend that. But uh, before we let you go, I just want to mention that you, you just mentioned it yourself on Twitter. I, I got to say, you know, before I started doing this as Ike, I pinched myself because I was a huge fan of Ike's. I was a fan of yours. And, you know, that's one of the things I love about this show that I get, you know, to meet all the people that I that I was a fan of growing up. You and Ike on Twitter are fantastic. <laughs> I know, seriously, I, I, I really, if everyone should, you guys put down all these clips and things from your career that like, you know, just like these random things are like, oh my God, that's right. <laughs> and I, I recommend it, highly recommend that everyone follows, you know, I always say about Ike, but your content is great too. And I, I love when the two of Thanks, you exchange man. things back and forth, exchange comments back and forth about the uh, things. So I definitely recommend, we're going to put you all your, your links in when we post the show. But, you know, how much fun is that for you being on Twitter like that, just posting all this, all your memories like this? Well, I'll be, I, I'm going to be super honest with you because that's my, that's my brand, the way they say it now. <laughs> um, 
First of all, I'm super jealous of Ike because he's got some archive of, of amazing ability to have all of this stuff from his childhood. Uh, somewhere along the line, you know, I lost the Lucy watch. I've lost all of these things. So <laughs> my, <laughs> my, my method is I kind of troll the internet for pictures of myself, which is sad enough, so that I can <laughs> post them and tell a story. And I'll be finding these things like going, oh, look at this. This is from Little House. I hadn't seen this in a while. And then I'll write up a little, I'll write up a little thing. But the reason why I got involved in all of this was, again, starting, starting the school, I figured, well, how am I going to get people to be aware? Because, you know, it can be the greatest thing in the world. But if no one knows about it, it doesn't really, you know, no one knows about it. So I said, okay, well, I'll go on social media and I'll let people know. And I go, well, but I can't really just go, hey, come to my school. And it's like, so you have to, you have to add value. You have to be, you know, sort of like, what is it that, why would people want to follow you? And so I started posting these things with the idea of like sharing the experience of a working actor is kind of, again, the prism of, of the Twitter aspect and the Facebook page and the Instagram page. The idea being, here are my experiences and kind of, kind of, isn't it kind of crazy and ridiculous as well? Because most of these things are, um, the, the, you know, I'm still looking for it. There is a moment where my brother and I, for Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey advertisement, when they came to town one year, they put my brother and I on elephants and we had an elephant race down Hollywood Boulevard in front of the Chinese theater. And I, I can't believe the sentence just came out of my mouth, let alone that it was something that actually happened, right? So it's like, you know, in a world where you're having an elephant race with your brother down Hollywood Boulevard, you've got to share it in some way. <laughs> Otherwise, it doesn't exist. And you got to, you know, you got to, you, you just got to laugh at it. And so that's basically where it started. And then being able to have humor about stuff at this, particularly at this period in, in the world, um, I found that a lot of people have humor and all of their comments and all the people that would comment on stuff. It was really fun and it has been fun and, and interacting with people and their jokes on my jokes and their comments are hysterical. And it, it's just a really... Uh, as far as a slice of life, it went from being something that I thought would be a promotional tool into something that turned out to be really a real happy part of my life. So yeah, I, I have a great time doing it. I love reading Ike's again, because Ike is like, you'll gradually drop. Here's me and Betty Davis. Here's me and Edward Albert. Here's me. And, you know, it's like just named Christopher Lee. You know, here, here I am, you know, in this movie I starred in and they're, all the pictures are beautiful. All the pictures are like well-sourced, you know, and me, I'm like, you know, screen grabbing, you know, things from, from Pinterest going, I think this is me and my brother and Todd Bridges. Well, I gotta tell you, I, I, you know, I, yes, I, I have this, I'm, I'm very fortunate. My father was an avid photographer. He shot all my headshots, you know, all, all my life. I've never paid for a headshot in my career. Wow. And, and so he, he would, you know, it kind of tapered off after a while cause I got so busy, but he was on the set shooting pictures, you know, all the time. So I have these behind the scenes shots and, you know, just a, a lot of material, but you know, it was all in, you know, plastic bins and sitting around forever. And until the advent of social media, it was like, 
it's wonderful to have it, but what do you do? You sit down once or twice a year and drink a bottle of wine and pull it out and reminisce, you know, with your significant other. I mean, what do you do with it? I'm so happy to be able to share it with people. Just it's, it's been fun. I've having the same experience you are with, especially right. with Twitter, because the interaction and the comments and being able to retweet things and, you know, and, 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 and respond to people in some way and give them a, you know, brief answer to their, to their questions. is just so much fun. And I've been having a blast with you. You have a, you, you're so damn funny and it's just it's it's just been a blast it's been a blast so keep it up <laughs> thanks man well I'll, yeah. I'll be real honest you know one of the things that i really i i had to figure out was how do you share stuff that's a part of your life where the idea is you wanting to share it but you're not at no point do i ever feel or want to come off like i'm bragging yeah, because oh, it, I know. It's, it's a not, fine line. I get it. Yeah, I mean, I've and I've seen Twitter feeds like that, you know, kind of, and I'm not <laughs> pointing at anyone directly, but, you know, it's like the, the people that just sort of like, here I am at, you know, yeah. wherever, great thing, and I'm here and you're not. It's like, no, that's not, that's not fun. Yeah. Um, it makes yeah. people feel less than. And what, I, what I've really discovered, and again, I'm not saying I discovered it. It kind of is like the people that are doing reading of these posts have made possible is now I get to, like you say, you know, who you're going to share it with your family. That's great. But now you get to share it with this big, huge other family or, you know, group of people that are getting something out of it because they didn't know anything about your particular story, like maybe the story with the Wizard of Oz thing. Mm -hmm. But in my life, it's like it blew my mind. Maybe it'll blow your mind. And and to be able to do that without it, like, I was privileged to do this. It's like, no, you were just some lucky kid. <laughs> well, no, it is great. I Like I said, I highly recommend everyone follows you. You, Ike, I always recommend all the time. But, you know, you, you're you great. I love your presence on social media. So definitely recommend everyone Thanks, follow. Man. And uh, again, we thank you so much for taking the time today. It was so much fun to get to talk to you and hear all these great stories and sincerely appreciate it. Well, it was a real pleasure to be here. Um, I, I, you know, I do watch the show. Um, it's, it's like, it's the, again, a weird situation where <laughs> I'm watching an old friend of mine interview old friends of mine going, I thought Brad Savage knew that. You know, it's like, okay, I got it. <laughs> well, again, thank you again. Uh, and again, this is Jonathan Rosen along with Ike Eisenman. And we have special thanks to Patrick Laberto. This has been Pop Culture Retro. And please subscribe. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Retro, where no one was hurt during the making of this podcast. <laughs>